podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two for the podcast. Today is Tuesday. It is the 31st of October. It is Halloween. So hope you're all ready to go trick-or-treating. Hope it stays dry for your trick-or-treating. Of course, you're all too old to be going trick-or-treating, so shame on you. Leave the sweets for the children. Right. Uh, I assume everybody knows what happened at the weekend in the Premier League. If you don't. Uh, Crystal Palace 1, Tottenham 2, Chelsea 0, Brentford 2, Arsenal 5, Sheffield United two, Sheffield United 0, Bournemouth 2, Burnley 1, Wolves 2, Newcastle 2, West Ham 0, Everton 1, Brighton 1, Fulham 1, Aston Villa 3, Luton 1, Liverpool 3, Nottingham Forest 0, and Manchester United 0, Manchester City 3. So I assume you all knew that. 
I assume you've all seen at least the highlights of these games. So I don't want to go into them because obviously that would have been the Monday show, but we didn't do a Monday show this week. Instead, I do want to address the two big VAR talking points that come out of the weekend, starting with Bournemouth versus Burnley, where Jay Rodriguez has a late equaliser ruled out for offside. And the biased commentator, who very clearly wanted Burnley to get a result, made it seem like some crime had been committed, because initially they drew the lines and it showed onside, then they redrew the lines and it showed offside. There's no controversy here. VAR got it right. Initially, the the line was drawn on the defender, sorry, on, on Rodriguez from the wrong spot. It was drawn from his knee, but his head was further advanced than his knee. And thankfully, David Coote saw this and realized the line had been taken from the wrong point on the attacker's body, had it redrawn, which showed the player to be offside. There's no controversy there. That is the process working. Didn't work flawlessly, but it worked. The second one is the penalty that Newcastle were given in the draw with Wolves. So, again, I've seen two sides of people viewing this. Huang has control of the ball. But it's a bit of a loose touch. And he waits and waits to make his clearance. He's trying to pick a pass. Fabian Schaar nips in. Huang catches him on the heel. And the ref gives a penalty. VO review it and decide to confirm the decision. I believe this is a penalty. Because I think Schaar gets the ball and then Huang gets him. And the thing is, even if it's 50-50, it's not a clear and obvious error. There's no way it's not at least 50% a penalty. There's no way you can look at it and go, it's never a penalty. I don't care what Gary O'Neill has to say. Huang fouls Shar. It gives the referee a decision to make. And the referee makes the decision that it's a penalty. There's no clear and obvious error. The penalty stands. Again, that's the process working. So Stephen Warnock, who, by the way, Awful pundit, even worse as a co-commentator. Get him off the television. He's dreadful. How it is that multiple outlets are paying him to be wrong about football, I genuinely don't know. 2-2 was a fair result on that game, regardless, so everybody walks away with with what they deserved. Winners and losers from the weekend. First winner's got to be Spurs. Palace is a tricky place to go. They didn't play particularly well. But for the third time this month, without playing at their best, they got the win. And that's really all that matters for Spurs right now is points on the board. They remain top of the league. They're unbeaten through 10 games. They've taken 26 points. They've got a goal difference of plus 13. Defensively, they look strong. Going forward, they're a problem for everybody. And in midfield, with Basuma and Saar, they've got one of the best pairings in the league. Everything for Tottenham right now is reason to be positive. Absolutely everything. They've got a difficult November coming up with Chelsea and Aston Villa on the slate, as well as a trip to Wolves. There's also an international break, again, because, you know, we need another one of those. 
But Spurs have put themselves in a very good position. And I think they'll get top four this season. I think they're probably a third of the way to the points tally that it, more than a third of the way to the points tally that would be required. Like triple their points, that's 78 points. That will get you third probably, let alone fourth. So I think they're in a really strong position. I think it'll come down to them or Villa for that fourth uh, Champions League spot. I think City will win the league. Liverpool and Arsenal will finish second and third. I think Spurs or Villa for fourth. And I give the edge to Spurs because I think Villa will be heavily focused on winning the Europa Conference League. I think if Villa got fifth and won the Europa Conference League, it would be a fantastic season for them. So Spurs is my first winner. My second winner has to be Aston Villa. We talked about it myself and Guy on Friday, how well they've done since Unai Emery took over. They've now played 37 league matches under the Spaniard and taken 74 points. That is two points a game. That is top four caliber football over almost an entire year. They go to Nottingham Forest next. You would expect them to get something from that game. They'll be favoured to win that game. And if they win that game, that's 77 points from a 38-game run in the league, forgetting anything else, in the league. That's exceptional for a team that were trending towards relegation when that manager walked in the door. He has done the best job in English football over the last 12 months, with the lone exception of the fellow that won the treble, but he works with the most stacked deck anyone in the history of football has ever had. What Emery has done, considering the finances available, the squad he took over, the mood of the squad he took took over, how poorly coached they'd been before he took over, what Emery has done is absolutely incredible. Um, they were very, very good at the weekend. The three nil that they, the three nil lead they had, didn't flatter them at all. It could have been five or six. The three one flattered Luton massively. It's one of the funniest own goals you'll ever see. With Ezra Konza putting too much power on a header back to his goalkeeper, the goalkeeper deciding. It was going to drop under the crossbar, which, you know, that's understandable. Jumping to try and save it, not quite getting there, and the ball hitting the crossbar and coming back down, hitting on the back of the head and going in. But 3-1 flattered Luton. Villa were excellent. And Villa are on a really good run right now. Since losing to Legia Warsaw in the Europa Conference League opening round, actually, you know what, go back. Since losing to Liverpool at Anfield, on the 3rd of September, in a game where they were comprehensively outplayed, they beat Crystal Palace. We're just going to focus on the league. They beat Crystal Palace. They beat Chelsea. They absolutely taunted Brighton. They drew at Wolves. They walloped West Ham. And now they've beaten Luton. Chelsea should be a top-half team. Brighton are a top-half team. And so were West Ham. And the showings they put on against both Brighton and West Ham were two of the most impressive I've seen from anybody in the league this season. 
for all the talk of Emery and defensive football, they've scored 26 goals in the league. Nobody has scored more. Nobody has scored more than Aston Villa this year. Newcastle have scored the same amount, but nobody has scored more. And funnily enough, defensively is where they actually have room to improve. They've conceded 14 goals. You've got Tottenham, Arsenal, City, Liverpool, Newcastle, Brentford, Chelsea, and Crystal Palace have conceded less, and Everton have conceded the same amount. So you're talking the the best attack in the league thus far this season, but only a mid-table, and I I mean literally mid-table, defensive record. That's very un-Unai Emery-esque. I imagine it shakes itself out over the course of the season. They'll probably end up with the fifth or sixth or seventh best attack, but I think they could end up with a top five defensive record overall. Um, the defensive record obviously is skewed by two matches. The game at, Anf- at Anfield and the game up at Newcastle, they conceded eight goals between those two games, which means they've only conceded six in the other eight games, and that is a good defensive record. So Villa are my second winner of the weekend. Uh, my third winner is going to be Brentford. They've not had a particularly good start to the season. They, of course, threw away what should have been a win at Old Trafford to begin October. Uh, was sorry, the second game of October because they played Forest on the first day. But since then, they've given Burnley a smacking and then they've gone to Stamford Bridge for the third season in a row. The third season in a row, they've gone there against the third different manager and they've won. And the 2-0 doesn't really tell the story. Though people will say, oh, well, it's really 1-0 because then the second goal came when Chelsea had sent the goalkeeper up for a set piece. And that's fair. However, what it ignores is the Brentford also missed three massive chances in this game. Massive, massive chances. So, for me, I wasn't impressed at all with Chelsea. I thought they looked very, very poor. But I was really impressed at Brentford, how organized they were, how diligent they were, the football they played, the counter-attacking, how easy they found it to play through Chelsea. Very, very impressive. They're my third winner. And I'm going to do a fourth today because this team got a win I just didn't think they were going to get. Everton beating West Ham 1-0 away from home. David Moyes seems to take pity on Everton because his record against Everton with West Ham is not nearly good enough considering the gulf between the teams. That's a shocker of a result for West Ham. It's a really big result for Everton because... Bournemouth won this weekend, their first win of the season. And had Everton not won, Bournemouth would only be a point behind them. And remember, Everton are facing the possibility of this 12-point deduction. This win means if that deduction comes this coming week, which is very possible, they'll only go to minus two, which would only leave them six points behind Luton, with a considerably better goal difference. Now, Luton are obviously 18th, so getting above them means you're in 17th, you're going to be safe. 
Luton would go 17th if Everton get the points deduction, so Everton would need to get ahead of them. That's why it would mean they'd be back in the safety zone. And you'd certainly fancy Everton to get six points more than Luton over the course of the season. The one wild card potentially could be Burnley if they could get their act together, but we're seeing no signs of that, and I wouldn't be surprised if the seat under Vincent Company was starting to get a little bit hot. So they're my winners. Tottenham, Aston Villa, Brentford and Everton. In a really tough week for Everton. Bill Kenwright dies. The news comes down that the Premier League is pushing for a 12-point deduction. There's a lot of noise around the takeover. There's a lot of noise around the financing of the stadium. That has to drift into the players at some point. But each and every one of them turned up and played well. So that's why they get included. Losers from this weekend, Manchester United. I mean, what an abysmal performance. Yes, they had a couple of chances in the game. But the golfing class was absolutely enormous. This looked like a title chaser playing a relegation threatened team. That was the golfing class here. Manchester United have spent under this manager in excess of 400 million. In excess of 400 million. And they lined up for this game with Harry Maguire and Johnny Evans at centre-back. And bear in mind, Raphael Varane was on the bench and Victor Lindelof started at left-back while Sergio Regulon was on the bench. So... This wasn't a, well, this is what we have. We have to roll with a type of choice. This was a decision that the manager made, that the defence he was going to play at home against Manchester City, the reigning Premier League champions for the last three years, the reigning Champions League winner, he decided that the defence he was going to play was Harry Maguire and Johnny Evans at centre-back and Victor Lindelof out of uh, position at left-back. That's what he decided to do. And he left Regulon and Varane on the bench. And Regulon came on as a sub for Lindelof when it was clear that Lindelof is not a left-back. But rather than move Lindelof into the middle and take off, I don't know, Harry Maguire, who was like a statue from the entirety of the game, he takes off Lindelof. No sense to it at all. In midfield... He went with Ericsson, McTominay, and Amrabat. Now, a normal manager would probably go, well, we'll play Amrabat and McTominay as the double pivot, and then we'll play Ericsson a little bit more advanced, and then we get the most of his playmaking. Not this fellow. Ericsson and Amrabat as the double pivot. And Scott McTominay as a number 10. He played Scott McTominay as a number 10 in a derby against City. That is another decision that this manager made. And bear in mind, sitting on the bench, he had Mason Mount, who he insisted on buying for £60 million. He had Anthony, who he insisted on buying for £90 And he had Garnacho, who's one of the best young players in world football. So he made the decision to play Scott McTominay as a number 10 and shunt Bruno Fernandes, captain and best player, out to the right wing. 
This is a manager who is failing and failing badly. And the comments he made about how he can't play his Ajax brand of football because he doesn't have the players, they're horseshit. They are horseshit. This gentleman has spent well in excess of $400 This man has been allowed to sign whoever he wanted, other than the players who turned him down. But if the player didn't turn him down, he got the player. How is it that you spent all that money on Onana, on Martinez? I know he didn't play, but just bear with me. On Martinez, on Anthony, on Casemiro. How have you spent all that money and yet you're still not playing your style of football? Surely they're players you brought in to play the Ajax brand of football. Instead, you forced all of them to adapt to playing Ollie Ball with a little hint of David Moyes there by putting a six foot four defensive minded midfielder as your number 10. This man is running out of excuses. The idea that he doesn't have the players to play a possession based game is nonsensical. Harry Maguire is good on the ball. He makes mistakes, but he's good on the ball, relatively speaking. Rafa Varane is very good on the ball. The only thing Martinez is good at, aside from kicking people, is his passing. He's very good at that. Luke Shaw, very good on the ball. Diogo Delo, very good on the ball. Victor Lindelof and Johnny Evans, they're not bad on the ball. They're not great. They're not Beckenbauer. But they're not Steve Bruce either. In midfield, Casemiro's elite on the ball. Eriksson's elite on the ball. McTominay's not great on the ball, but he's really good off the ball. And he makes very intelligent runs from deep into the box, not from advanced into the box. That's just a nonsense. Amrabat's decent on the ball. Not great, but he's decent on the ball. Rashford, Bruno, Mount, Sancho, Anthony, Garnacho, Palestri, Ahmed Diallo. Who's not good on the ball? Like, which of these players can't play a possession-based style? Hoysland and Martial up front. How are these this team so poor? I understand they've got a few injuries. I do. But the injuries aren't the reason they're playing this dreck. Because they've played this dreck every single minute under this manager after Brentford pumped them on the second day of last season. There's no excuse for United to play this deep block, direct, counter-attacking dreck. There's none at all. You've got the players to play a possession-based game. Now, are they all great? No, not at all. But here's the thing. If United were getting these results and were eighth in the league, but there was real signs that this manager was implementing an identity, was crafting a team to play his way, as he calls it, his way, that Ajax style of football, then you could at least say, well, at least they're going in the right direction. Or they're at least going sidewards, and then you'd hope they'll take a jump. But they're not. They're going backwards. Now, I get they had a disastrous season that last year under Ollie and Ranić, 
But the year before that, they finished second. That season was a down year, largely caused by the fact that they signed Cristiano Ronaldo and he just took over the club. But last year's fourth place and League Cup win was hugely overhyped. They finished fourth, mostly because Liverpool, Chelsea and Spurs just stank all the last season. They won the League Cup because they got very favourable draws and then in the final they played Newcastle with their third-choice goalkeeper. Funnily enough, because the second-choice goalkeeper was cup-tied, having played for United during a loan spell. There's just... Like... Are you telling me that Deserby had the players to immediately implement his brand of football? That Ange Postacoglu had the players... I mean, they both have made far less signings than Ten Hag, spent far less money than Ten Hag, and yet both of them are playing their brand of football instantly. Unai Emery took over well after. Like, remember, Ten Hag got the job in the April. So he had two months to assess the squad and its needs. And what he needed from the board in terms of financial backing and what players he wanted to target, etc., etc. Emery took over at the start of November. No preseason, team going into the toilet. And thus far, there's no question that Unai Emery has done a significantly better job than Eric Ten Hag. Like Eric Ten Hag last season took 75 points across the course of the year. Emery wins his next game, that's 77 from his first 38. So that's that's better, in case you weren't you weren't sure. He's doing it with far lesser players. Like you look at what would a combined 11 of Manchester United and Aston Villa look like? You'd have Emmy Martinez. I think the fullbacks could be Delow and Shaw. At centre-back, it would be Varane and Pau Torres. So there's 3-2 to two advantage for United. Holding midfield, I would personally go with Bubakar Kamara over Casemiro because I think Casemiro is washed. Um, but, you know, if you want to talk historic greatness, it's Casemiro. But I would go Bubakar. Next to him, you, you'd go with uh, Ericsson, I think, as a playmaker. You could go Douglas Luiz. But I think I'd go... You could play both Kamara and... Actually, Kamara and Casemiro is probably the move. Then Bruno is the 10. Diaby right side, Rashford left side. So that's six to four United, and the, the nine would be Ollie Watkins. So it's six to five United for a combined 11. But in terms of depth, United have much better depth all over the pitch. The Villa players not getting in that team are not as good as the United players not getting in that team. Now, Jacob Ramsey for me is a magnificent footballer, and I think in time he, he will work his way in. but. 
you know, it's not like it's not like Emery's working with the same level of quality. He hasn't spent the same level of money. He spent a hundred million. This fella spent four hundred million. And United are this bad. As a Liverpool fan, I hope he stays there for the next ten years. But I mean, I don't know that he's gonna survive this season. I really don't. Uh, next up then, next loser from the weekend, it's got to be West Ham. That's now three defeats on the bounce. No shame in losing to Villa, though they were embarrassed in the game. Uh, no shame in losing away to Olympiacos, but a lot of shame involved in losing at home to Everton. And you barely worked the goalkeeper. Pickford had two saves to make. I don't like the Kudus as the 10, Paqueta left wing nonsense. Put Kudus left wing and put Paqueta in the 10 and let him influence the game from there. After the hot start, James Ward-Prowse's form has dropped way off and without set pieces, he really isn't much to shout about. They would be better off playing Suchek next to Alvarez with Bowen, Kudus, Bowen, Paqueta and Kudus behind Antonio uh, I said I was worried about the left back. I thought Cresswell had a really poor game, but there's just there's no excuse for that performance. That was that was shocking from West Ham, really really shocking. And Everton could have scored a couple more. I thought Onana was monstrous in midfield. I thought he was tremendous. I thought Tarkovsky and Branthwaite had really good games dealing with the pace and power of Antonio and Kudus. Patterson had a bit of a rough one. Michaelenko had some shaky moments, but you expect that against Paquette and Bowen. But Everton played played well and deserved their win, but West Ham was shocking. Absolutely shocking. Uh, my third loser from the weekend then. It's tough because... You can't say Forest, they lost to Liverpool. You can't say Crystal Palace, they lost to uh, Spurs. Luton, Burnley and uh, Sheffield United, do we expect them to actually win games any week? Same goes for Bournemouth. Bournemouth were playing Burnley. So, you know, they were playing one of the, the, the other bad teams in the league. I think it's got to be Chelsea. At this stage, it feels a bit like I'm picking on them, but I mean, how have you spent all this money and you're this bad? Now, on the plus side for Chelsea, they have a positive goal difference through 10 games, which Manchester United do not have. United have a goal difference of minus five at the moment, which Palace, Fulham, sorry, Palace and Forest have the same goal difference as United, minus five. Uh, Fulham are minus seven. And then the bottom four are all minus 11 and worse. So you've only got five teams in the league with a worse goal difference than United right now. That's awful. And it's not like they've conceded huge amounts of goals. 16 is a lot, but it's not, it's not 25. You know, you've still got Wolves have conceded more. Uh, is that it? West Ham, no, West Ham have conceded more and the bottom 
the bottom four. The issue is when he scored 11 goals, 11 goals, you've got 75 million Hoysland, 80 odd million Anthony, 75 million Sancho, 60 odd million Mount, Bruno Fernandez, Marcus Rashford, Anthony Martial, Garnacho, Palestri. How have you only scored 11 goals? Look at who you played. Campbell's. Anyway, back to Chelsea. It's one step forward, two steps back here at the moment. I said people were getting carried away by the fact that they'd beaten Fulham and beaten Burnley. Neither of them are particularly good. People got carried away by the, by the Arsenal performance. If you watch that game and take the goals out of it, just, just you watch it without the goals. Find when the goals are, skip the minute of the goal and watch the game. And if someone told you you had to guess the scoreline, guess what took place in the four minutes that are missing, you'd say Arsenal won 3-1. You would. You'd say Arsenal won 3-1. The penalty is a moment of stupidity from Saliba. The second goal is a fluke. There's not a hope in the world he is trying to shoot. That's a cross. Like, they didn't create much of anything, really. The other big chance they had in the game was because the goalkeeper made a Hames of a pass. Now, Arsenal weren't great by any stretch. But once Arsenal woke up, they did open up a few times. More so than Chelsea had done. A draw was a fair result on the balance of the game, but genuinely, if you watch that game without the goals, I, I guarantee you come away thinking. And someone just says to you, right, that game ended 3-1. Who scored? And told you, you know, this is where something has been removed a minute prior to a goal and a minute after a goal, let's say. This is where that's been removed. Who won? You would say Arsenal won 3-1. You would. That performance this weekend was dreadful. Genuinely dreadful. Defensively, they're trying to be clever, playing a back four with the Sassi at right back so that Kukurea can push forward from left back and the defence slots into a back three. But you're still playing Thiago Silva. You're still having to play a back three to make up for Thiago Silva not being very good. Gallagher has been impressive as a 10. He's hopeless in a double pivot. He's a really good presser. He's a ball winner when the ball's in front of him, as in he's facing the opposition goal and the ball is between him and the goal. He's really good at going and getting that ball back. If the ball is between him and his own goal, he's useless. Absolutely useless. Always drawn to the ball, always leaves runners brainless um, and there's just not enough goals in that front four I mean Noni Mudeki has no track record of scoring a lot of goals in the Premier League no track record of scoring any goals in the Premier League Cole Palmer doesn't have a, a big track record of scoring goals in the Premier League Raheem Sterling does and obviously he's a, he's a great player but Nicholas Jackson doesn't really have a track record of scoring many goals at all. Now, if you look at last season, which is what Chelsea fans tend to point to, 
He ends the campaign with 13 goals in 38 games, 12 and 26 in the league. It's almost one and two. It's not bad. But when you factor in that nine of those goals came in eight games, that's just a hot run of form. Outside of that, there's nothing to suggest he's that level of player, that level of goal scorer. Now, he's a good player. He's talented. He's rounded. He's not a goal scorer. He's not your nine. I I thought originally, watching him play for Villarreal, that he'd be a nice Sun-type complement to a Kane-type nine. So I was thinking, you know, him and Ivan Tony, as an example, as a pairing, would be decent. And I, I still maintain that it would, but he's more a Charleston than he is Sun. He's more a Charleston than he is Sun. He doesn't have that composure, that calmness, that two-footed nature, that ruthless streak in front of goal. He's a little hot-headed in front of goal, like Richarlison. And his skill set is quite similar to Richarlison as well. I think he'll be a good squad player for Chelsea. I don't know that he's long-term going to be a starter. So there's your winners and losers from the weekend. We will go to break. When we come back, we will get into listing the 10 best centre-backs in the league, the 10 best centre-backs in the world, the 10 best centre-backs of all time, and my favourite centre-backs. Just right-side centre-backs this week. Next week, we're going to do left centre-backs. And the following week, we're going to do sweepers. Now, that's not going to have a 10 best now. So what we're going to do is more of a deep dive on historic sweepers. Uh, and spend quite a bit of time talking with them. That's two weeks from now. This week, right side centre back. So I'll see you after this. Right. Welcome back. So we are ranking, I suppose, power ranking centre backs today. So it's the right side centre back position. We'll start with our Premier League top 10. This is a difficult one. Because for me, each of these players has flaws. I don't think there's a a right-side centre-back in the Premier League right now. I don't think there's a definitive best. In the way that Van Dijk is the definitive best left-side centre-back, I don't think there's a definitive best right-side centre-back. So I expect that people will have different views on this. But number one, I've gone for Christian Romero who I think this season in particular has really shown a new level of playmaking from that position. Defensively, he's outstanding. 1v1, he's ideal. He's exactly what you want. He's got quick feet. He's got good hips. He can turn and go with a, with a winger, with a runner. He's brilliant when the striker tries to stand him up. He doesn't react. The other side of him is that overly aggressive side. Now, the aggression is great when he harnesses it the right way. But sometimes it does spill over a little bit. Last season, we obviously saw it spill over too many times. Now, part of that was he was partnering Eric Dyer at centre-back, so he was having to do far too much. This season, with Mickey van de Ven next to him, he's not having to do nearly as much. And I think he's been tremendous to start this campaign. So 
He's in at number one. The knock on him, obviously, is the discipline. And if he can continue to show this level of improvement in that regard, I think he becomes very quickly the comfortable number one in that role. Number two, I've got Ibu Kanate. Defensively, he's incredible. He's limited on the ball. Not bad. Not bad. He's a decent ball carrier. He's a decent passer. But he's not an expansive player from that position. Physically, he's a freak. He's a monster in the air. He's incredibly quick, ridiculously strong. The knock on him is injuries. And and is he improving as much as you would have hoped from where he was in 21-22 to now? And I think the answer is no, but I think it's because of the injuries. Now, he's also only now getting to play with the best version of Van Dyke the way he did in 21-22. And when those two click and find their rhythm, I don't think there's a better pairing in world football. I think he's got the potential to be number one here if he can stay fit. At number three, I've gone for Saliba. And this might be a little bit high, though I expect some people will say it's a little bit low. Defensively, he has flaws. He doesn't read the game all that well. He looks the part. He's very composed on the ball. He's got that Rolls-Royce-esque ability to stride out with the ball. He does make too many defensive mistakes for my my taste. Now, he's got good recovery pace, which is a, a plus. He's big and he's strong and he's good in the air. Though I'd like to see him be more dominant in the air. For his size, he's not as good in the air as you'd want him to be. But he's young and he's learning. And there's potential. So we'll slot him at number three. That may be where he maxes out because the two above him are better than him now. And the age gap with him and Kanate is not huge. And I think if Romero gets his discipline right, his all-round package makes him one of the best in the world. So three is where I'm going to slot Saliba. My issue with him is the defensive awareness. Facing his own goal, he's not a good defender. And it's just, it's those little pockets around him that he still needs to needs to improve on. Like, if you look at the lens game and look at the winner, he is with that man stride for stride and then that man stops moving and he doesn't realize and he keeps going. That type of thing is what I'm talking about. And that's not a one-off. That happens quite often, too often to put him in that elite category. The people that overrate ability on the ball for a defender, the type of people that told you for years that PK was world-class and Boateng was world-class, despite the fact that they were never particularly great defensively, they were good but not great. Actually, Boateng is probably a decent comp for Saliba. Good recovery pace, looks to part, good on the ball, but defensively questionable. And 1v1, he does tend to get beaten a little bit too too often for my liking. Uh, I know there was a stat going around. He hasn't been dribbled past in so many times. That's because he doesn't drift out to fullback to cover wingers. When it was Van Dijk... Robertson was playing as a glorified left winger and Van Dijk was covering the entire left side of the pitch. Ben White's a centre-back tucked in next to Saliba, so he doesn't have the huge, massive amounts of space that Van Dijk had. 
Um, number four, we're going Raphael Varane. This is a bit of a historic pick based on who he has been. But I still feel like a fully fit Rafa Varane is still a very good defender. Not a great defender anymore. Not the world-class player he once was, but a very good player. Certainly the best defender at Manchester United. The issue is they don't protect him uh, properly. Uh, And they're also asking him to be the dominant aerial centre-back, which isn't his, it's not his bag. He's good in the air. He's very good in the air. But he's best if you put him next to a dominant aerial beast and he can slot in behind and act as the sweeper. That's where he was great. Like at Real, when he partnered Pepe, Pepe would go and win everything. When he partnered Ramos, Ramos would go and attack everything, miss quite a bit, but Varane would be able to sweep in behind and make up for the mistakes that Pepe or that uh, Ramos would make. Number five, I've gone with John Stones. Now, he's one of the more overrated players in the league. And this pick is also more to do with the fact that this is one of the weaker positions in the league, the right side centre-back role. We heard a lot of talk about John Stones last season. People saying he's the best centre-back in the world. Well, first things first, he played 16 games all season at centre-back. 16. 34 appearances, 16 of them came at centre-back. So I'm not having that he was the best centre-back in the world. He also played only 2,700 minutes. This season, he's barely played 300 minutes, if he's even played that. So he misses too many games. He is flawed defensively. And Guardiola knows he's flawed defensively. Stones in his career has had one good season, August to May. It was a season when there was no fans in the stands. But let us not forget, we're not that far removed from a season in which John Stones was fit and sitting on the bench while Fernandinho and Otamendi were the centre-back pairing. That season, he played 1,500 minutes in all competitions, despite being fit for most of the season. The season before that, he played 2,800. 2021, this is the good season. The season that stood out. The season where he was consistently a baseline seven most weeks in eight. There was no fans. There were no real strong contenders to City. He still only played 2,800 minutes, but he was very good. 21-22, he loses his spot to Laporte, who's a better defender than them, it must be said. And he plays 2,200 minutes. And then last season, again... He's played 16 games centre-back. He plays 2,700 minutes. If I'm not getting 3,500 minutes from you in a season, what's the point of you? And you're certainly not going to be highly ranked on my world centre-back list. 16 games at centre-back. His, his great run from February on came largely playing in holding midfield next to Rodri, the best in the world in that position. And even the games he did start at centre-back, he would play in midfield for the majority of them. So he's number five 
And it's purely because I'm not overly keen on the rest of the list. Number six is Lewis Dunk. Lewis Dunk's a flawed defender. He's, he's slow. He's not very good 1v1. He's got an awful tendency to back off to the, to the safety of his penalty area, which invites shots from distance, which is okay if you've got a great goalkeeper. He's got Jason Steele at the moment. That's a problem. He's good on the ball. He's really good in the air. He's a good organizer, a good leader. He's a good team defender. He's very brave, but he's flawed. But he's number six. Number seven is Joachim Anderson. It's just about consistency with him because skill-wise, skill-wise, I'd put him number five after Varane if he had more consistency. I'd put him ahead of Stones because he plays a lot more. He does just have bad games every three or four games. He'll just throw in a bit of a rotter. If he could find a more consistent baseline performance, I think he'd be number number five, potentially even number four, given Varane's decline. Maybe he needs away from Roy Hodgson and Vieira and negative football. He's got a very good partner there, remember, in Gwehi, but he's nothing on the right side. He doesn't have a good right back, and he hasn't had a good right back since he got to Forest or to Palace, rather. So maybe that's the issue. Maybe if they put in a better right back, it would help him because he has been asked to do a little bit too much. Um, <clears throat> number seven. No, that's number seven. Number eight. Then I've got Tarkovsky. Uh, very much the same line of thinking as Lewis Dunk. Uh, good, not great, balanced, but flawed. Lack of pace and mobility concerns me a little bit. Uh, number nine, I've got Ezri Konza. A couple of years ago, he'd have been higher on this list. He hasn't taken the step forward I wanted to see. I think playing with Tyron Mings too much actually hurt hurt him quite quite a lot in terms of he was been asked to do a ton of covering work and it was causing him to neglect his own work. Uh, number 10, I've gone for Zerbani, and that's a gamble on what I think he's going to be. It's also a, a, a nod to the fact that I just think it's the weakest position in the league right now. I, I really am not keen on anybody else outside of that, so I've gone with him. Uh, worldwide, Marquinhos is number one. It's not a competition. He is, by far and away, the best right-sided centre-back in world football, by far and away. Defensively flawless, good on the ball, versatile, can play right back, defensive midfield, left side centre back. As a 1v1 defender, he has very few equals in world football. Uh, so he's one. Romero is two. Kanate is three. Number four, I've gone Jules Kunde. Now, he does make the odd mistake that's quite glaring. But they are few and far between. It's just that he's a 70 million defender who makes a mistake and gets replayed forever. I would actually love to see him be the right back in that Barcelona team because I think he's he's actually dynamite on the ball as well as a ball carrier, not not necessarily as a passer, but he's he's a very, very good ball carrier. He's a very good back post runner as well. Um, but I've gone for him at number four. Number five, I've gone Jean-Claire Tadibo of Nice. He is, at this moment in time, maybe number three in terms of form. You could even argue he's number two in terms of form. 
Because in terms of form, I'd say Romero might be one and he might be two. Marquinhos having a very good season, but Tadebo week after week, standout performances, eights and nines most week for a Nice team who've only conceded four goals in the league and are top of the league despite only scoring 11 goals, which in the French League right now, you've got Brest with 11, Toulouse with 11, Le Havre with 10, Strasbourg with 9, and the bottom three with 8 and 7. It's one of the worst attacks in the league, but it's the best defence in the league by a comfortable margin. PSG are next with 9. That's over double the amount in the same number of games played. And if we look around Europe, that is the best defensive record anywhere in Europe. Girona have conceded 8. Sorry, Girona have conceded 30. Real Madrid have conceded 8 in La Liga. In Syria, Inter have conceded 5. So that's actually, that's outstanding as well. But they're playing a more defensive system with that back five and the the sitting midfielder. Uh, Premier League, City and Arsenal, I think, have the best defensive records. Uh, City, seven. City of seven. So, you know, you look around all the def- all the leagues in Europe and that's the best defensive record that anyone's put forward. Four goals conceded through 10 games. And he has been incredible. And here's the other thing. All the other teams we've, teams we've listed, we can name all the players in the team and they're well-known. A lot of them are very good. For Nice, you've got Rosario, Pablo Rosario, filling in at right back. He's a midfielder playing right back. You've got Dante, who at this point is is 40. 40. Years past his best. And yet, there he is putting in strong performances. And it's because Tadebo is doing so much of everything. And at left back, you're getting Bard, Melvin Bard, who's decent, but he's more attack-minded than he is defence-minded. You've got Bulka in goal. I mean, these are these are not players that are household names. The chap from Burundi in centre midfield, Yosef, like his surname I'm not going to try and pronounce. I mean, he's not a household name. This is a, very much a, a thrown-together type of team. Badao is very good. Morgan Sanson is decent. The front three are okay. Boga is very, very, very talented. But in defence, I mean, that's very much a launched-together type of group. Kefren Turam and Terra Mafia are there to provide real quality. But at the moment, that defence is what is making them perform at this level. Um, Latumba is probably the starting right back when everybody's fit and available. Um, and he's not, like, he's not exactly top class by any stretch. She's seven caps for Switzerland. Um, Tadebo has been unbelievable. Uh, then I've got Saliba. Then I've got Edder Militao. Now, part of that is he doesn't play often enough for me. There's, there's too much Rod- uh, Rudiger in that team. 
because Militao just doesn't stay fit enough. Uh, then I've got Varane. Then I've got Upamecano. <laughs> Delict hasn't played enough. I think Delict is is still the better defender, though I'm still disappointed by where he is, considering where he should have been by now. Right, like right now. When we discuss the best centre-backs in the world, Matthias Delict should be one of the first names that come up, and he just isn't. But he's still a better defender than Uber McCann. Um And number 10, I've gone for Scalvini of Atalanta, 19 years of age, can play all across that back. Three, excellent centre-back. Great on the ball, good in the air, quick, reads the game well. Huge, huge potential. And when... The Italians finally commit to him and Bastoni as a pairing. I think that's going to be absolutely immense for them. With Donnarumma behind them, figure the rest out from there. That's that's a really strong pairing and a and goalkeeper. Um, Stones doesn't get in my top 10 for the reasons I laid out. He doesn't play enough, and his best role is actually holding midfield next to Rodri. There's two who are unfortunate not to be in. One is Edmund Topsoppa. Now, the reason I haven't put him in him in is because he hasn't nailed down a spot in the Bayer Leverkusen team. Some weeks he's right side centre-back, some weeks he's left side centre-back, some weeks at the back three, he could be right side, left side, or in the middle. So I do think he should be on this list. I do think he's one of the 10 best right side centre-backs in the world, but Jonathan Ta tends to play there more often than anyone else. And I'm not a big Jonathan Tarr type of guy. Uh, And the other one then, who I actually think has the potential to be number two on this list. And the biggest reason I would move Jules Koundé to right back is Ronald Arejo. Who, like Stones, just isn't playing enough for me to put him in. Um, I think Ronald Arejo has absolutely everything you would want in a top-class centre-back. 24 years of age, 6'4", quick, dominant in the air, good on the ball. He's only played under 400 minutes in in La Liga. He has played twice in the Champions League, but that injury that caused him to miss five games and the form of Koundé... That's why he's not getting. Like, in the last three league games, 46 minutes, 30 minutes, and then he played the 90 against Real. He played at a right back. Like, in in that game, I'm looking at that team, and I'm wondering why Inigo Martinez is starting. Christensen to left centre back, Arejo at right centre back, and Kunde at right back. With Balde at left back, that is easily their best defense. Terstegen in goal, then you go with whatever you can patch together in midfield because they don't have a good holding midfielder. Um, and obviously at the moment they're missing Pedri and De Jong, so they're, they're light numbers in midfield. But I, I think Ronald Arejo has the potential to be one of the five best centre backs in the world with an extended run, like 15 to 20 games, week in, week out. And I think he shows what he's capable of. We've seen it. I mean, last season, he was super impressive to me, but he only played 2,600 minutes. And he did play it right back in a number of games. 
he had an abductor tear and then he had a calf injury at the end, end of the season. But when he played at centre-back, they were incredible. In fact, when he played centre-back last season, in the league, that is... How many appearances in total? 22 appearances. One, two, three. Three at right-back. So 17, uh, 16... 19. 19 at centre-back. They only lost to Almeria. Oh, he Almeria 1-0. He came on as a sub in that one, so he didn't even start it. The only game he started at centre-back last season that they lost was Rayo Vallecano. And that's one of only two games where they conceded more than one goal with him at centre-back. Clean sheets galore. He he's just he's so physically impressive, and he reads the game really well. I think he's one of the next great centre backs. I really do. And if I was making decisions at Liverpool, I'd be throwing a large bag of money at him because Barca are broke, need money. They're going to need to sell somebody, and I think he's the one they might part with. And I would throw a huge bag of money at him. Because if you could have Van Dijk, Kanate and him, you're playing two world-class centre-backs every single game and you can rotate them. <clears throat> and he can play he can play left side and right side. He's better on the right in my view, but he can also play left side. And I actually think Kanate might prefer, I think he's better on the right for now and he does play on the right, so that's why he's here. But I think he might prefer to play on the left. So Arejo and, and Kanate as a long-term centre-back pairing could be absolutely incredible. Um, let's go all timers then. So, my number one right side centre back of all time is Paul McGrath, and I know people are going to say that's bias. I don't care. He was phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal for United and for Villa, and even at Derby, he was very good. He was incredible for Ireland. He had everything you'd want in a centre-back. He could be your sweeper. He could be your front-footed stopper. 1v1, he's brilliant. He's a brilliant help defender. Sweeps across behind his partner. Sweeps the midfield. Even when his knees went, his reading of the game was so good that he was just always a step ahead. And at the age of 34, at the 1994 World Cup, when he had knee issues leading into that game, he took the best player on the planet at that point, Roberto Baggio, and put him in his pocket. And he did it to such an extent that he also made Phil Babb look incredible next to him and fooled Liverpool into spending a lot of money on Phil Babb, who was not very good at all. Paul McGrath, to me, is is one of the five best centre-backs of all time. And if I'm picking an all-time Premier League 11, it's him and Van Dijk. He is that level. He was that level of special. He, anything you wanted him to do, he could, he could play right-back, play in midfield, could play left-side centre-back. It was just a doddle to him. The game was very, very easy for Paul McGrath. 
And I think the versatility is what puts him number one for me. Number two for me is the best man-marking centre-back I've ever seen. Alessandro Costa-Curta, who's obviously part of that famed AC Milan backline with Tassotti, Baresi and Maldini. And he and Tassotti never get the credit that the other two get. And that's fair enough. Baresi's the best centre-back ever. Maldini's the best defender ever. But him and Tassotti were incredible. Like, it was nearly easier to attack the Baresi-Maldini side than the Costa Curta Tassati side. They didn't have the on-ball ability of the other two. But from a strictly defensive point of view, they were better defensively. Like, Tassati would lock down that right side. You weren't beating him. and You weren't beating Costa Curta. Baresi was incredible defensively. But sometimes some players got the best of them. Sometimes, maybe twice in his career, players got the better of Maldini. Nobody got the better of Costa Curta till very, very late. Like, I'm talking peak. To very, very late, it was different. But, like, this guy played into his 40s. One-to-one defender, incredible. You need someone to man-mark a player out of the game, you put Billy Costa Curta on them. And because Milan were so strong with Tassotti and Maldini as the fullbacks, those two could just tuck in next to Baresi as a three. And let Costa Curta just follow whoever around the pitch. Completely take them out of the game. Phenomenal. Number three is a player who is historically incredibly underrated. Very similar to McGrath in terms of style, in terms of that versatility, could play in in multiple positions. Manolo Sanchez, Real Madrid legend, 18 years in the first team, 13 as captain, 710 games for the club, multiple Champions Leagues, eight league titles, multiple European, uh, multiple UEFA Cups. Somehow only 48 caps for Spain and didn't play for Spain after his 27th birthday. And I'll never fully understand why that is, because he was brilliant. Even late in his career. Now, he spent a lot of his time in his early career playing as a sweeper because that's just how teams played at that point. Later in his career, when he moved into playing as a right-side centre-back next to Fernando Hierro, he would often take on those man-marking jobs. And he could just take anybody out of the game because he was quick, he read the game well, he was aggressive. But he was an incredibly clean player. Like, he wouldn't foul for the sake of fouling unless he had to. Unless it was a situation where, like, it was one of those cynical fouls. But he would try and avoid fouling at all costs. He's a really good footballer as well. Like on the ball, could ping any pass, could carry the ball out. Manolo Sanchez has somehow become incredibly underrated. I see people talk about Sergio Ramos and say he's the best centre-back that's ever lived. Well, spoiler alert, he's not going to be in my top 10 in any position. He might have made right back had he stayed there his entire career. He probably would have. He's not getting in as a centre-back. Sergio Ramos is the third best centre-back to play for Real Madrid in the last 35 years, let alone ever. Hierro was better. Sanchez was better. These were great defenders who were also good on the ball. Ramos was never a great defender, ever. 
very good in the ball. Not quite as good as Hierro, a little bit better than, than Manolo. But defensively, this is not even a competition. Manolo could go multiple seasons at a time without making a mistake. Literally, multiple seasons at a time without making an error that even led to a shot. Ramos couldn't go multiple halves at a time without making an error that led to a shot. Manolo Sanchez is number three. Number four, we're going Jürgen Kohler, the great German centre-back, played for Cologne, Bayern, Juve and Dortmund. Part of the Dortmund team that won multiple league titles in the European Cup, part of the uh, German national team that won the World Cup in 1990 and the European Championships in 96, although he did miss most of that tournament with an injury. Uh, five-time member of the Bundesliga Team of the Year, despite spending a significant chunk of his well, four years with Juventus. Um, again, just a brilliant 1v1 defender, very similar to Costa Curta in a lot of ways, a little bit quicker than Costa Curta. Maybe a little bit better in the air as well, but not quite as good at that man marking. Like you couldn't send Collar to trail someone around the pitch. You could he wouldn't he wouldn't be suited to that role. That's where Costa Curta has the advantage on him. But Collar for strength, reading the game, understand understanding what's around him, the spatial awareness. Spotting runners, knowing when to go, when not to go. He was one of the best I ever saw at rotating a runner onto somebody else or rotating a ball carrier onto somebody else. Knowing when it was time to let someone else pick that player up and get back into position. He was just phenomenal. Also, one of the great leaders of the of the game, like an unbelievable organizer at the back, despite not, not being a regular captain, didn't need to be a captain, just took control of the defense and would organize. Injuries hold him back a little bit historically, though thankfully when he went to Dortmund, he was able to stay fit for extended periods and he had great success there. Um, Like I said, multiple league titles in a European cup with, uh, with Dortmund and had won a Bundesliga with Bayern and a Serie A with Juve as well. Also won a UEFA Cup with Juve. So other than the Cup Winners Cup, he won pretty much everything there was to win. And I don't think he'll be too put out considering he can shine his World Cup medal and his European Championship medal. Uh, next up then is the great Brazilian, Aldair. Again, he fits very well into what I'm looking for in that right side centre back role, which is a great man marker, an organizer, a consistent performer, you won't find bad Aldair games. The guy didn't know how to have a bad game. Flamengo, Benfica, Roma is what he, where he's best known for in his club career. Spent thirteen years there. Uh, the most capped foreign player in Roma's uh, history. Also had his shirt number retired. Um, but then it was because Serie A wouldn't allow them to retire it. It was uh, it was given back. 
this will tell you what kind of leader this guy was. He was appointed captain of Roma in 1998. But he realized that there was a really special young player at the club by the name of Francesco Totti, who was 22 at the time, and was a little bit wild and a little bit not fully always switched on for training and things like that. And he realized that the best thing for the club, not for him personally, the best thing for the club was to give Totti the captaincy in the hopes that that would help him mature, which it obviously did. That type of selfless act, that's always important. High character, great leader, great organizer, great 1v1, great team defender, good in the air, quick, good in the ball. There's no flaw in Aldair. There's no flaw in any of these four. They're all incredible. All of them. And so is number five, because number five is Fabio Cannavaro, who also fits in with everything I've talked about. 1v1 defender, phenomenal. Quick, good first touch, ability to read the game, good passer. He could carry the ball out of defence. And he was like a little bowling ball, because he's 5'9". But he had such power, and he was so well built, like he was a, looked like a little bodybuilder, that he could just bundled through players. But, I mean, the career he had, Napoli, unreal at Parma, Parma's probably, like, people will remember him at Juve, but Parma's where he spent the bulk of his career. Played the majority, the most games for Parma. Juve, Inter, back to Juve. Finished off playing in Saudi. 136 caps for the national team, which is very impressive. Obviously won that World Cup in 2006. Won four league titles in his career. Two at Juve. Two with Madrid, they can say the titles with Juve were taken away. They still won them. Uh, won a UEFA Cup with Parma as well. Won two European under-21 championships with Italy. It's very unusual for a player to win two of them. Won it in 94 and 96. Um, he was voted the best player of the tournament in the 96 version. He was also voted the best player at the 2006, sorry, second best player at the 2006 World Cup. But very unusually for a defender, he won the Ballon d'Or in 06. Now, I would suggest that Henri probably should have won it that year. Cannavaro was first, Buffon was second. And the World Cup very clearly swayed um, people's view. Henri, from the club point of view, had the best season, but it wasn't. It's not a robbery by any stretch. Uh, Fabio Cannavaro was was awesome, absolutely awesome. So he is in at number five. No, sorry, that's number six. McGrath, Costa Curta, Manolo, Kohler, Aldair, Cannavaro. Cannavaro is number six. Uh, Number seven then is another Italian, Claudio Gentile. And again, he just fits into this same type of profile that I'm looking for. A great 1v1 defender. Hard as nails, could boot you up in the air, but he'd probably catch you on the way down because he was a fair player. He read the game brilliantly, had the versatility, could play in midfield, could play fullback, could play either side of defense. Five foot ten, one of the best headers of the ball the game's ever seen. 
quick, just impossible to get by. Genuinely impossible to get by. Um, phenomenal career for club and country. Six league titles with Juve. Uh, Cup Winners' Cup, UEFA Cup. Won a World Cup with the Italians. Got to another semi-final. Uh, came through at Arona. Played for Varese. Biggest chunk of his career is with Juve for 11 years. And then he moved on to Fiorentina and Piacenza. 71 caps for the national team. Just a, a great, great defender. Uh, he's now 70 years of age and he could probably still do a better job than most of the players knocking around. Wasn't shy of putting a player back in their box if they needed to be and would do it very subtly and very slyly and not get caught for it. But for the most part, a very fair player, but a, a great, great defender. Um. He improved so much over his career. Like when he first appeared on the scene, he was seen as just like imagine if David Bowie David David Bowie, David Batty was a defender. Like that kind of really good at what you're asking him to do defensively, but just don't ask him to actually touch the ball. By late in his career, he was one of the best ball playing centre backs in Europe. So that'll tell you it is possible if you put in the work. Uh, number eight, we're going Ricardo Carvalho. Porto, Chelsea, Real Madrid, Monaco, 89 caps for Portugal. Won pretty much everything there is to win in the game. Uh, three Portuguese league titles, a UEFA Cup and a Champions League. Three Premier League titles, three FA Cups, two League Cups, a La Liga title, and the European Championships in 2016, though more was just a squad player at that point, not a not a starter. He was 38 years of age. Um, he played till he was 39 and retired after a short spell in China. He is currently the assistant one of, one of the assistant managers at Portugal uh, under Roberto Martinez. Uh, I have no doubt he will become a good manager because he's the type, the cerebral type of thinker. And again, he just fits in. And the thing to know here is that all of these guys that I'm talking about, they're not giants. Like These are all guys who are like, you know, between five, nine and six foot. But they read the game brilliantly. They had that strength, that ability to dominate a striker physically, despite not being bigger than them. That's something that we've lost in the modern game. Now, Marquinhos does it to an extent, but he doesn't have that real core strength. Romero does. Romero and Marquinhos fit into this historical view that I have of right-side centre-back. So um, I I love Ricardo Carvalho. Ricardo Carvalho, John Terry should send him a thank-you card every day for the rest of his life. Because Ricardo Carvalho is the primary reason people think John Terry is one of the best defenders of all time. And he's not. Maybe a borderline top 10 Premier League centre-back of all time. But he's not an all-time centre-back in a global sense. Not not even a little bit. Uh, and certainly not the best centre-back the league has ever seen. Number nine, Carlos Puyol. Now, he could play either side centre-back. And I spent some time trying to figure out which side he played more. Because he was getting in one way or another. Because I love Carlos Puyol. 
I think he played more on the right than the left as a centre-back. He also played a lot of right-back in his career. Leader, organiser, 1v1 monster, great in the air despite being 5'10". A a physical beast, like an animal. Absolutely no possibility that you were going to out-muscle him, no matter how big you were. He is one of the truly great defenders of the last 20 years. And again, somehow has become underrated. He's the third best Spanish defender of all time. After Hierro and Manolo, it's him. It's not PK, it's not Ramos. It's him. This guy spent his entire career at Barcelona. Played in some fairly poor Barcelona teams where he stood out as really, really good. He needs to get out of there and go somewhere where he might win stuff. Uh, in the end, he won. He won a whole bunch of stuff. He won six league titles. He won three European Cups, two Copa del Reyes, two World Club Cups. Won a World Cup and a European Championships with Spain. And despite the fact that Iker Casillas wore the armband, this was the leader of that team. Um, one who I fear is going to end up being hugely underrated. The last one then I've gone for is a player who's still active. Now, he's a borderline top 10. I've put him in. It's a, it's a bit of recency bias here. I've gone with Leonardo Bonucci. Um, there was a time where it looked like he was just going to be another talented player who never amounted to a whole lot of much. He spent... Came through at uh, Viterbesi. So more more evidence here that you don't need to come through at an elite level club to go on and be an elite level defender. From there, into into Milan picked him up. It didn't work out. He had a couple of loans. And he didn't hugely impress on these loans. Inter let him go to Genoa. Genoa gave up on him pretty much straight away. And he ended up at Bari. And at Bari... He partnered Andrea Ranocchia. And Ranocchia was seen as the more promising of the two. He was the one that people had big, big hopes for. Benucci was 23, and people were kind of already starting to give up on him a little bit. Together, they were brilliant together. Brilliant as a pairing. And Ranocchia went back to Genoa, who'd all, who had owned him as well, and Inter bought him. Benucci ends up getting picked up by Juve. And from there, I mean, the rest is history. Look at what he accomplished with Juventus. He wins one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight league titles, four cups, runner-up in the Champions League twice. He'd won a league title technically as part of the inter-team in 05-06, despite the fact he never played. I think he played once. Did he play once? Yeah, he played once. And he got a league title medal. Um, won the European Championships, obviously, in uh, 2020. Had been a runner-up in it in 2012. 
had that one weird season where because of his son's illness, he had to move to Milan so his son could get treatment. And then he, his son got the treatment and he wanted to go back to Juve and he went back to Juve. And there's still a group of Juve fans that hold that against him. But Benucci Cialini, as a pairing, purely as a pairing, is the best pairing that we've seen in 20 years, 30 years. Like, as a pair, forget about them individually for a second. Because they're both all-time greats. Cialini might make my top 10 left side, but I don't think he will. But he'll be in, a, he'll be in a, an honourable mention. But as a pairing, they were just perfect together. They were great in a three with Barzagli, and then Barzagli left and it became a two. And remember, Juve spent huge amounts of money to buy Matthias De Ligt. Big amount of money to buy Christian Romero. They never gave Romero the opportunity. They never gave Demerel an opportunity. They, they did give Demerel some opportunities, but he was a head case. But De Ligt had a tough time breaking up this pairing because it was still that good. And, and like even at that European Championships, where Benucci was, what was he, 34? And Chiellini must have been 36? Yeah. Like, they were flawless through that tournament. Those two together, as a pair, not individually, just as a pair, I'd really struggled to think of a more perfect combination. And part of it was just how long they played together and how much they got to know each other. But both of them were defenders that other clubs gave up on. Juve almost gave up on Chiellini at one point. But what they were able to do together was just incredible. Now, this is a bit of an inverse situation in that Chiellini was the man marker, the 1v1 type. Benucci wasn't. But late in his career, he really did develop into that incredible 1v1 type, despite the fact that his pace went. Early in his career, he's one of the best ball-playing centre-backs I've ever seen. So, Benucci gets in as number 10. And my five favourites, I'm going to go McGrath, Roberto Ayala, I'm putting in here. Manolo Sanchez, Carlos Puyol, and a shout-out to one who didn't make the list purely because, well, not purely because, but in, in part because injuries took him out in his pomp. Mark Lawrenson. Mark Lawrenson was phenomenal for Liverpool. Absolutely phenomenal. He'd come through at Preston, which is where he's from, gone to Brighton, he joined Liverpool, and he was just phenomenal. Five league titles, European Cup, FA Cup. But the Achilles injury that ended his career, that was tough. And it meant that Mark Lawrenson basically retired at 31. He tried to have a bit of a comeback with Barnett. He went and played for Tampa Bay Rowdies. He just couldn't couldn't play at a decent level. Um, he tried management, that wasn't, he wasn't suited for that at all. But Mark Lawrenson, Mark Lawrenson and Alan Hansen was one of those partnerships like Chiellini and Bonucci. 
where the skill sets just meshed perfectly. And uh, yeah, he was cut down at 31, which is a shame. But he he was one of my uh, my honourable mentions, as was Roberto Ayala, who I still can't believe was as good as he was, despite being at best five eight, at best. Now Wikipedia wants you to believe he's five he was five ten. Not a hope was he five ten. He's five ten. They wouldn't have nicknamed him the Mouse. He was immense, absolutely immense. But yeah, that is that. On to the BBC website where we will pick up the news, but not before. (sighs) The 2034 World Cup will be held in Saudi Arabia. Australia have decided to withdraw their planned bid, leaving the Saudis as the only bid for said World Cup. And that means we are getting yet another World Cup in the Middle East, which will have to take place in winter. And will just be so farcical and so fake that I feel like, I just feel like it makes a a bit of a a joke with the whole thing. Um, Clearly the Aussies have been paid off. Very clearly the Aussies have been paid off. Uh, Congratulations to Lionel Messi who is your Ballon d'Or winner for the eighth time. And also congratulations must go to Etana Bonmati, the women's Ballon d'Or winner, Spanish international midfielder, plays for Barcelona, huge part obviously in the success and well-deserving of her award as well. Um, West Ham News, Vanessa Gold is set to sell part of her stake in the Premier League club. Vanessa Gold says she is willing to sell part of her family's 25% stake in the club. The shares were initially owned by her father, David Gold, who obviously passed away in January, unfortunately. Um, Gold's eldest daughter, Jacqueline, died two months later, which, again, is just... What a horrible, horrible couple of months for the the Gold family. Uh, Jackie had been battling cancer for seven years, and unfortunately, it uh, it finally got the better of her. But she did put up the good fight. So uh, Vanessa has taken control of the in the, the business interests, and she was appointed to the club's board in August by David Sullivan, who owns thirty nine percent of the club. Uh, Gold will be willing to sell up to 10%, which would leave her with 15%. Uh, there is no time scale. My guess is that Daniel Krutinsky buys the club, buys the, the 10%. Uh, that would bring him to 37%. That is my guess, that he's the one who makes that move. Now, West Ham are currently valued, or sorry, West Ham were valued in 2021 based on the Krutinsky deal at $650 million. You could probably track it up to about seven hundred and fifty million, given the way things have shifted. So, for ten percent, she's probably looking for about seventy-five million. Uh, my guess is it will be Kretinsky who buys the shares. Great news for Real Madrid: Vinicius Junior has extended his contract until twenty twenty-seven. I think it's 
fairly safe to say that that fella is only going to continue to get better. He's already arguably the best left winger in the world. I think Kuicha, if he hadn't had this kind of slow start, would have a case. But I, I'd still stand with, with Vinny as the best um, the best left winger in world football right now. And that is that, I believe. So we'll just do the gossip. Now, we could do four days worth, but that seems a little bit redundant. And also, I'm aware that this podcast has gone quite long. Uh, So what we're going to do is we're going to do two days worth. We'll do yesterday and today. Uh, Roma are considering a swap deal with Tammy Abraham heading back to Chelsea in return for the permanent signing of Romelu Lukaku. I don't believe that to be true. Real Madrid plan to sign Kylian Mbappe and Erling Haaland. I do believe that they plan that, but I don't know how realistic it is in the next two years. Uh, Arsenal, Manchester City and Manchester United are all interested in Mark Gwehi. Hmm. I mean, the gap between him and Gabriel isn't isn't big. Gabriel's probably just slightly ahead, and Gabriel's not old. He's more reliable than Gabriel in terms of errors. But West um, Arsenal like having that left footed centre back, so I don't really see that. He's not going to get in over Saliba. I think that's a bad move for him. Uh, City, him and Diaz would be interesting. Him and Diaz would be interesting. Does he get in over John Stones, though? Is Stones fit enough? He probably does get in. Um, United, he should avoid, like the plague. Arsenal are prepared to sell Aaron Ramsdale next summer. Okay. Robin Lenormand of Real Sociedad has been monitored by Manchester United and Real Madrid. Again, I don't believe this because United have the gnome and... Real have Alaba, who's basically just a better version of Lenormand. Arsenal may reassess a move in January for Wolves winger Pedro Neto because of concerns over his fitness. Uh, You're only getting that part now? That's strange. Real Madrid, Arsenal and Chelsea all want to sign Shamrock Rovers midfielder Nat... Naj Razi, who's 17. Uh, he's an Ireland number 17 international, can play as a 10, can play both wings. He's an incredibly exciting player. And he is hopefully, hopefully, hopefully going to play a huge part in the future of Irish football. Um, I think all of those will be horrible moves from. I think the best move for him is to go somewhere where he's going to get opportunities in the short term and continue to develop, not go to a factory, go to, you know, more of a hobby farm. Uh, Fluminense is 22 year old Brazilian midfielder. Andre rejected a summer move. I made interest in Liverpool and Arsenal. Not quite what happened. Not quite what happened. You've just sort of taken the truth and put a spin on it. Uh, Liverpool are considering a move for Jamal Musiala, who's unhappy with his current playing time. Aston Villa are preparing to open contract talks with Douglas Luiz, who is admired by Arsenal. I feel like the Arsenal thing is a lazy link because he was linked a couple of years ago. Manchester United are interested in Jean-Claire Tadebo, who I've just said is excellent, but he should also avoid going there. But he is what they need. 
Like him and Varane would be a very good pairing. Him and Varane would be excellent because you can you can move Varane back to left side where he played quite a lot of his football over the years and play Tadebo as the right side of one. And then you've got Shaw left back, Delow right back, those two in the middle. I'll never be sold on that keeper, but he would be very, very good for them. Arsenal and Tottenham want Ivan Tony, but are not willing to meet Brentford's asking price of 61 million. And Jesse Lingard is searching for a new club because Steven Gerrard's Al Etifak do not have enough room in their squad for him. That's not what it is. It's that they can't sign anybody till January or something strange, or maybe it's the foreigner rule. They'll find a spot for him. They'll find a spot for him. I mean, they're garbage. I like the fact they're garbage. He shouldn't want to go there. Um, he should want to stay far, far away. Uh, yet another uh, poor performance from them uh, today, as it happens. They've lost 1-0 to Al-Nazir, Sadio Mane, with the only goal of the game, uh, Jordan Henderson wearing a number 10 jersey will never not be hilarious. Um, yeah, very fortunate to win at the weekend as well. They're just not very good. They're not very good at all. Uh, let's stop talking about them because they're dross. And let's get on to today's gossip. Real Madrid will not pay more than $17.5 million for Kepa who cost Chelsea £72 million five years ago. Juventus could use the wages saved on Paul Pogba, who faced a lengthy ban over failed drugs test, to sign Thomas Partey on loan. I don't think he'll be allowed into the country. Saudi Pro League officials want to sign Kevin De Bruyne, who would cost about £50 million. Um, I just don't think he's going to do that. Mikel Arteta has added Martin Zubimendi and Aurelien Chouameni to his list of targets. Uh, more for the proof that he doesn't think Declan Rice is a six, despite buying him to play as a six. Uh, Fluminense's Andre would be open to a January transfer. Liverpool would not sell Mo Salah in January, despite offers from the Saudi Pro League. Marcus Rashford may have upset Eric Ten Hag by going to a nightclub after Sunday's derby defeat by Manchester City. Well, everything offends Eric Ten Hag. Poor fella. He's got feelings all over the place. Um, Chelsea and Manchester City are monitoring Florian Verts. Florian Verts should say as far clear of Chelsea as he possibly can, but he'd be a great buy for City. Uh, Maurizio Pochettino is interested in Athletic Bilbao's 26-year-old Spanish international goalkeeper Unai Simon. What could possibly go wrong with signing a goalkeeper from Athletic Bilbao? Napoli are open to negotiating a new contract with Victor Osman. Chelsea and England defender Trevo Chalaba has been offered a move to Borussia Dortmund. He's going to be a good signing for whoever gets him. English forward Divine Mubama has turned down a contract extension with West Ham, having only one year left on his contract. West Ham have not done a good job at tying, tying down their, young, their best young players over the last couple of years. Uh, Right, that's it. That's me for today. I will speak to you all tomorrow for Nostalgia Day. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.
Social Podcast Network.